Hi, this is Scott Thompson. No, let me show you. <laughs> Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show Podcast. Coming up, Quebec is reopening. Is Ontario far behind? How many need to be vaccinated before we can open up? And the Trumpster legal battles are beginning. It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Cases of COVID-19 continue downward in Ontario. I'm going golfing in Quebec. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. We're not going anywhere. Your bike's staying in the garage today. You're not riding to Quebec. What do you think this is? All right, good afternoon. It is 12-11. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the rails. Feel free to jump into the fun. Oh, what a gorgeous day it is outside. Uh, you can jump into the fun many ways. Uh, you can go out in your backyard, or you can go on Facebook and Twitter, find the podcast edition of the commentary there. You can send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Uh, Going to give you an update on the COVID-19, as we always do, and uh, talk about Quebec and uh, why they are where they are. Where are they? We will find out, get the timeline for you. Uh, Ontario still waiting for uh, what Quebec has done now, so hopefully uh, very soon. Going to play you a report here, and this is in regard to uh, Quebec and where they are. Good evening, everyone. Francois Legault's late afternoon press conferences usually mean bad news. Good news. That was not the case Tuesday. The Quebec Premier wearing a cautious smile. The situation is getting better. The big news right off the bat is the lifting of the province-wide curfew. As of May 28th, Quebecers will once again be allowed outside after 9.30 p.m. Restaurants will reopen gradually, but by May 31st, outdoor and indoor dining will be allowed. High school students in two weeks go back full-time and in person. Now, one big factor making this possible is COVID-19 hospitalizations. The numbers in Quebec are down to where they were last October, and Quebec's approach in this third wave made it the smallest wave it's had so far. Mike Armstrong, Global News, Montreal. All right, let's bring in Les Perot, journalist for The Globe and Mail, and is with us now. Les, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Very well. Thank you, Scott. So we remember, as Mike Armstrong's report was saying, that at the beginning of the first and second waves of, of this pandemic, uh, Quebec was in a bad state. How, what did they do? How did they turn this around in the third wave? Well, we had some of the strictest measures uh, for quite a long time. We, uh, you know, restaurant patios, to name one example, have been closed since early in October and haven't opened since. Uh, we have a curfew that people probably know about that was imposed shortly after the new year. That's 139 days that we will have lived under a curfew when it's lifted at the end of the month. Uh, and it seems to have worked. It uh, allowed the police more leeway in shutting down parties and that sort of thing. They handed out a lot of tickets. And uh, some other things, too. Montreal got very aggressive about contact tracing. They hired a bunch of new people and were able to crack down on cases that way. So all that meant that uh, for a change, we weren't uh, the COVID-19 leaders when the third wave came. 
Uh, we remember uh, you referred to as COVID-19 leaders at the beginning of all of this. Once the vaccine started to roll in, uh, Quebec made a decision very early on to go with one dose, whereas here in Ontario, uh, they were adamant about giving two doses to those in long-term care and seniors uh, and such, and then went to uh, the one-dose regimen. Uh, regimen. Do you think that played a part in this at all, or how much did it play? Well, I think one thing Quebec did that that helped overall was they kept the vaccination plan fairly simple. As you say, they went with one dose early, and they also stuck pretty strictly to age as the main criteria for who gets the vaccine first. And the net effect of that was that it the system worked very efficiently. Uh, we've handed out more doses than any other province uh, proportionally to our population, uh, and there's a lot of enthusiasm for it, to be honest. And, and I think it, the sacrifice we made in that, that Ontario has been a little bit better at is targeting hotspot neighborhoods and that sort of thing. Uh, but what Quebec did was hit the most vulnerable people quickest. Uh, because as you know, the people who die and get really sick for, from COVID, the older you are, the more at risk you are. So Quebec really did stick to their guns on that for the most, with a couple exceptions. And, uh, and I think it made it more efficient. So that's why we're back on that front. And what about uh, seniors in long-term care through the second and third wave? How did that change? Uh, well, because they did the single-dose thing, when, when vaccines were super scarce, uh, they managed to get through long-term care fairly quickly. They were the first people up. And the uh, seniors' residences, too, got taken care of fairly quickly. Uh so that all had a tremendous effect on getting hospitalizations and deaths down, at least compared to the, what they were in December and November. And certainly the first wave, which you know was an absolute catastrophe in Quebec. Uh, and, and it was risky because there have been breakthrough engines. You know, older people sometimes don't get as immune of a vaccine from a single vaccine as younger people do. And so there were still some outbreaks. Some people did die. But overall, I think it, it was a successful strategy to at least keep the image as limited as possible. And now all those people have gotten second dose in nursing homes. And uh, I think seniors' homes are about to now. So uh, the curfew, obviously, a uh, you know a much debated point when this all came in way back when. Uh, how was it accepted? It's in place now until May 29th, and understand that uh, is in place uh, until 9:30 at night. How big of a role? And again, when you look at how uh, uh, Quebec fared in the third wave, do you would you use the curfew? Would you say the curfew was a one of the strong reasons for that, other than what you've just mentioned, which which really, in a sense, is not a lot of different from other provinces certainly ontario but the curfew does seem seem to be something that stands out yeah i have to admit scott i was skeptical about the curfew myself there's very little uh scientific evidence that says you know curfew equals uh success uh cutting down on on uh covid spread but i think the big thing was when they had just a ban on social gatherings People followed it to some degree, but it was not always obeyed. Uh, you know, there were fines in place to crack down on social gatherings, but the police said they had a hard time using them. There's complicated legal reasons to explain why it was it was a complicated matter for them to enforce. It was, you know, it's harder to see what's going on inside people's houses than to just catch people on the street. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a crude tactic to reduce mobility. 
And, you know, there, there, I think there will be, it will be debated for years whether it was worth it because, you know, they used it to keep a few hundred thousand or maybe fewer than that, you know, tens of thousands of people to keep tens of thousands of people from throwing parties and having dinners and stuff. Uh, but at the cost of 8 million people not being able to go outside after 8 p.m. Uh, so that, that cost benefit thing, uh, I think will probably be debated for a long time uh, as to whether or not it was effective enough to be considered worth it. But it definitely had some effect. And what about hospital numbers and ICUs? Uh, what's that like in Quebec right now? Uh, we're about a third of the estimated capacity on both. Uh, and they, the numbers are going down. They're going down quite slowly. Uh, our, our peak of this third wave, so Montreal didn't really even have a third wave, but parts of the province, other parts of the province made it such that, you know, there was a little bump in cases in, uh, in March and April. Uh, but, but I think one of the things that happened is that because our cases didn't go up very high, they're going down much more slowly than what you're experiencing in Ontario right now. Your cases are declining quite rapidly. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, we're, we have about 500 cases. We have a little over half of your population and about, uh, I think a little less than a third of your case number. And so, uh, those numbers are dwindling, but it's taking a bit of time for them to, to get down to, you know, ideally, uh, you know, ideally, we'd be having zero deaths. Uh, we're still a little ways away from that. I noticed today uh, there was one death in Quebec, which to me is like almost a small miracle. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we're getting there. So give us a timeline here of how they've uh, announced the reopening. Obviously, uh, people in Ontario chomping at the bit to get some sort of guidance very similar to this. Give us the timeline. What's going to happen? It's incredibly quick. Uh, starting Monday... The high school students in a, just a few locations, uh, there were a few locations where high schools were still closed. Uh, basically, all the high school kids are back full-time starting Monday. That's the start. And then in very quick succession through the month of June, you know, restaurants and bars and, you know, they're going to start with the outdoor version of all these things. So patios will open first uh, and then outdoor sports will open first. But by the end of June, basically, uh, most things will be running with, you know, restrictions on crowds and limits on how many bubbles can mix and all that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, an example, Scott, of something that's a, a pretty big deal. We haven't been able to have an outdoor gathering on our property uh, since the month of September. Mm. So just to have someone over for a tea on the back deck has been impossible. Uh, and that's something that's going to change on March 28th. So just to give you one more example of a very stringent measure that's finally going to disappear here. So May 28th is when things slowly will start to open again and then pro right. uh, progress through June. Yeah, and I would say even rapidly. By the end of June, like, basically everything is going to be open with just a few restrictions. And now what they're dangling is if we all get our second dose by September, uh, even things like masks will be done with masks. So uh, that's the carrot they're trying to use to make sure everyone goes out and gets their second dose. That was my next question, was the second dose. Again, uh, going back to what I said earlier, Quebec uh, really w was at the forefront and started the first dose uh, before anyone else, certainly in Canada. Uh, that's for sure. So is there, is there enough interest, enough uptake in that second dose? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see because, you know, it falls in the summer and uh, things are going to loosen up and people will be out enjoying life and uh, maybe a little less motivated to go out and get their shots. So uh, it's 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 hard to hard to predict how that will go exactly. 
but I, I certainly there's enough enthusiasm for the first shot that I think most people will be ready to go get their second shot as soon as possible. And uh, so here we have a pretty centralized uh, electronic booking system. So I got my shot about a month ago, and I got booked at that time for my next shot on August 8th. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think this is all going to get basically moved up by a month or two because the uh, the vaccine supply is going to start pouring in here and over the next few weeks and uh, and I think their their hope is to move everyone up so it doesn't end up being the full four month uh, wait for most people. And so uh, obviously uh, some pretty strict measures and and Quebec turned this thing around uh, pretty quickly and uh, and certainly finished off better than they started. Uh, but again, some strict messer, um, uh, measures with curfews and such. How are Quebecers feeling about all of this now and this uh, announcement of, of their gradual reopening and such? Uh, what's the reaction? Um. There's are there still some, I guess the question, I mean, obviously it's going to be joyous, but are, are there some that still are saying this ha- this went on way too long or where, where's people's headspace on all this? Yeah, like there are definitely some people who think this took too long, that we've stayed under confinement too long. There are also some people who think the lifting is happening too fast. But that, that I'd say both those are sort of marginal views, but on either side. I think people are actually a little bit proud that they managed to get their act together, that we collectively mm. managed to get our act together. Yeah. Uh, you know, that first wave was a, was a traumatic event for this province. And I, I think books will be written about how bad that was and how much it hurt the uh, sort of psyche of the population here to see the extent to which we failed our elders. And so I think now there's just sort of this sense that, oh, thank God we finally got it together. And what about uh, long-term care? Because that, as well, here has been a uh, you know a, a point of debate and something that's been neglected for decades uh, here, and and hence the premier's uh, policy of, of getting those uh, those people with with two shots uh, right away. What what is the reaction to the long-term care issue in Quebec? Well, there's a public inquiry underway right now, uh, studying or a coroner's inquiry, I should say. It's kind of like an inquest in the rest of the country. They call it an inquiry here. Um, so I think people are waiting for that. There's a lot, There are a lot of calls uh, among the political opposition to have a full public inquiry into what went wrong and, and what needs to be done. Um, I have this sad little feeling that we're all going to forget about it in six months uh, yeah. and, and go back to business as usual. I... But part of me has, I guess I still hold out a little bit of optimism because, you know, a lot of the budget constraints that we had before that, that, that seems to have fallen by the wayside. I think, I think the sort of flow of money and the willingness to go into debt and that sort of thing might actually open up a window to make permanent improvements in that, in that system. Uh, but it's not a sexy topic and it doesn't win people elections and it yep. remains to be seen if it will in the future, you know, uh, uh, I know I would vote on it, but I don't know if everyone else would too. And, uh, I don't know. I'm very mixed on that. To be honest, Scott, I, I have this nagging feeling we're all going to go back to sleep. Good point. Uh, here was hoping that we don't. Les Perot with us, uh, journalist for the Globe and Mail, Quebec, and speaking from Quebec, giving us uh, the angle on the ground there uh, as they start to uh, open up and reveal plans to do so, uh, first starting with the getting rid of the curfew, May 28th. Les, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. 
Thank you, Scott. My pleasure. Let's bring in Dr. Colin Furness, epidemiologist, associate professor with the Institute of Health Policy Management and Evaluation at the University of Toronto's Dalat-Lanet School of Public Health and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm managing. <laughs> That's a great way to put it at this time. Uh, Colin, Let's. Uh, I want to mention something that uh, was in the news report that we just heard, and this was from Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, our, our top doc here in Hamilton. And, you know, she was saying, and we certainly know, you know, the issues around AstraZeneca and the hesitancy there and such and, and the differing uh, information from Health Canada and, and NASI and such. But she was saying that people were coming up to uh, to vaccine clinics and then discovering that it was Moderna, not Pfizer, and we're walking away. Have you have you heard of that? I mean, I understand there was some discrepancy between the uh, the RNMA or RM or RNMA vaccines and the traditional vaccines, but are you seeing it between Pfizer and Moderna? I have not heard that. I have not heard that at all, actually. And it, 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 that's surprising in a sense. Those are two different brand names for more or less the same thing. Yeah. Same kind of vaccine. Yeah, very, very similar. We don't have a lot of Moderna. It's mostly Pfizer. So, you know, that, I suppose if there was more Moderna, we might see that happening more often. I think there's been a lot of confusion, very unfortunate, bad communication around vaccine brand and what that means. So, but there has been no issues with Pfizer or Moderna that we know of, have there? Well, every drug, every vaccine is going to have some side effects. Mm-hmm. And uh, as far as vaccines go, the Pfizer and Moderna ones are, are truly excellent. Um, there has been anaphylaxis in some cases, um, and, and so that's, that's not indicated for people who have, uh, are at high risk for anaphylaxis. And I think there's been a few other unpleasant things, but, but by and large, the, the benefit that we get from the Pfizer vaccine is, is so many times greater than the risk. All right, let's talk about where Quebec is uh, right now. Uh, have just announced their their reopening plans and such. We remember, doctor, what what Quebec was like in the first and second waves. How did they turn this around? How did they go from where they were to where they are right now? Do you think? You know, it's it's something we may spend years trying to sort out because COVID COVID has has produced a lot of mysteries. Countries like India, which seemed to have a really easy time early on, then got slammed. That's a little easier to explain because COVID got adapted to local conditions. In the case of Quebec, it's the opposite. As you say, they got clobbered early on. They're doing better now. I think it has to do with the population adapting to a certain degree. That is to say that the people who are most at risk got sick. The people who are most careless got sick. Once they're out of the equation, whoever's left is, is, didn't get COVID, I think, because they're being more careful. Uh, because we've been able to adapt our work practices because we've gotten more used to uh, things like lockdowns and being safer. And and Quebec did have some pretty serious interventions. They had curfews. They they were the first to close provincial borders way back. So they've taken more aggressive steps. That might help explain it, too. Uh, what about the one dose strategy? Because we remember early on in this, when vaccine first came out, uh, you know, it was obviously a two dose vaccine and such. Ontario decided to do two vaccines in long term care, get them done, and then go into the general population. Quebec decided they were the first, I believe, in the country to do the one dose strategy. Uh, your thoughts, and did that help them in any way, or how did that help them? 
Yeah, it may well have. Um, from, an ethical, from an ethical standpoint, to give people a jab and then change the rules after the first jab, I, I never agreed with. I don't think that was a good thing. I don't think that was necessary. It undermines faith. It makes people upset and angry and worried and stressed. And for the small number of people it applied to, it, it wouldn't have made much difference. So I think their approach was a bit ham-fisted. But globally, regions that have decided to try and get more people with one jab rather than doing it systematically with two jabs have seen really good outcomes as a result. It's a risky strategy because if you have a partially immune population and then you open up too soon, which is what they're doing in the United States, you are begging for COVID to, ad- to adapt, to acclimate to vaccines and to, and to be able to evade them. I'm not saying that will happen, but if you wanted that to happen, the best thing to do would be to have a, a partially immune population and, and, and still have a lot of COVID circulating. So we're still playing a risky game. However, the outcomes so far have been excellent globally. Uh, you brought up the U.S. So how concerned are you? Because, again, they were, you know, under a different administration, certainly in denial of all of this. And then once the vaccine production kicked in, they went from zero to 100 in, in, in no time. Uh, and, you know, people saying that they were awash in vaccines. They are awash in vaccines. Are you concerned that with the hesitancy that might be uh, kicking in there now, that they may uh, find themselves in a, uh, a bad situation? And I think eventually you will see per capita more Canadians vaccinated than the U.S. by the time it's all over. Your thoughts? Yeah, they went from zero to 45 rather than from zero yeah, to Good 100. point. And, and part, you know, part of that is they were very early, and, and early is great, except that it allows for polarized attitudes to become entrenched. That is, when they were vaccinating aggressively, you didn't have the example of the rest of the world having done this already months earlier. We actually have that, right? We can look to the U.S. and say they did not grow horns, they didn't die in droves, they didn't turn into zombies, whatever, whatever else the mythology may be, we're able to see that things have gone really well. So we've got a bit of an advantage, I think, from that standpoint. But the United States has always been more polarized. And, and, and the polarization, the ideology of you know, individual resilience and personal responsibility, it's easy to incorporate vaccine rejection with that kind of ideology. We're not as polarized here. And I, although I did see the crazy levels of protests, anti-mass protests in Toronto this, this past weekend, by and large, we're not so polarized. And I don't think vaccine hesitancy is going to be as strong here. I don't think vaccine rejection is going to be as strong here. But we're going to see soon uh, a slowdown in our in our uptake rate. So we're going to surpass the United States, and then we're going to start to come across um, a phenomenon where there's just less enthusiasm to get that shot. And fingers crossed that it gets high enough before that happens. So uh, obviously, uh, people now at this stage of this uh, pandemic, very fatigued. Everybody, you know, nothing new there. Uh, and, and looking to get out, looking for those guidelines, looking for uh, the light at the end of the tunnel. Your thought on Quebec, their plan and, and what they're doing, uh, obviously starting May 28th with the lifting of the curfew. Many are saying or some will say too soon, too much too soon. Others will say not enough. Keep going. Where do you lie in all this? It's, it's difficult. It's difficult because I don't live in Quebec. It's hard for me to know what has been the impact of that curfew, but it's got to be fairly dreadful. We live in fear of opening too soon. This has been Ontario's story again and again. However, Quebec is doing very well. Their measures are very intense, and you have to balance the, the mental health harm. And I mean, I don't mean sad people. I mean suicide. I mean yeah. domestic violence. I mean pretty awful things that can happen when you have these, these horrible lockdowns and interventions. So you want to open up as quick as you can without causing mayhem. Now, 
Quebec's vaccination rate is really good. That's that's very much to their credit. I don't think I don't have the sense they're rushing it too much. Of course, we're only going to know after the fact. But I think across Canada, we're going to have a really great summer. The bigger question is, what do we do in the fall? I think that's where we may drop the ball. And what do you mean by that? When it comes to the second dose, uh, what's your concerns about the fall? Well, let's fast forward. It's September 1st. We've vaccinated maybe 10 million people in Ontario, and we're feeling pretty proud about that. That means there's almost 5 million people not yet vaccinated. Every kid under 12, and plus everyone who's who's not been able to or not felt comfortable doing that. And the the uh, variant from India, the 617 variant, it'll be dominant by then. There's, there's no doubt in my mind. So in September, we're going to have 5 million, 4 or 5 million susceptible people and a very aggressive variant. That could produce a very ugly wave if we let it. And, and I think that's what we need to be worried about. That's, that's, what the, that's the risk for the fall. It's not inevitable that we have a mess, but we're going to have to plan smart, and that includes, in my estimation, vaccine passports to do things like participating in school and, and in-person work. Hmm. Now, what about the kids by fall? Should all kids be vaccinated before they hit the back to class in September? If it were up to me, I would say that attending class in school for those 12 and above would be contingent on getting vaccinated, yes. And we've always had a homeschooling option for people who decide that they don't want to be vaccinated. I would never want to forcibly vaccinate people, but we need to also protect people who do choose uh, to to be vaccinated. And I want to be clear, vaccination makes you resistant to disease. It doesn't make you immune. Populations are immune when the disease disappears, but but if you're going to mix together vaccinated and unvaccinated people, you, you are putting everybody at risk. So it's, it's a pretty serious thing. I don't think we're going to be able to get our kids under 12 vaccinated um, by then. The timeline for approval is not clear, and we're also talking in Ontario alone, you know, a couple of million kids. So I'm hopeful that we will be able to open schools, that we'll do it by having families participate in school where they have been vaccinated, and that we try and get those kids vaccinated as quickly as we can in the fall term. Can you see kids getting back before the end of this year? Can you see them getting them in just for the last month? I think in some parts of Ontario, that would be a plausible thing to do, but I haven't heard any signals from the Ministry of Education that suggest that that's on their mind. I, I think that's, that's unlikely and probably really unwise in, the, in southern Ontario and the GTHA, but there are parts of Ontario, and actually I could point to Kingston as an example, not that far north, but, but parts in the north as well, uh, where they're actually managing just fine. And in those, in those instances, I think it would be great to get kids back in, but, but every board has to make that decision, and, and you know, a one-size-fits-all decision for the province would be foolish. Uh, the Prime Minister said yesterday uh, there's lots of chatter uh, around borders. Obviously, the U.S. and uh, Canada officials, Canadian officials, getting together to discuss what this is going to look like and a timeline for it and such. Uh, the Prime Minister was quick to point out, uh, and I do believe that it's uh, the border closure has been extended to June 21st. Uh, I saw that earlier this morning. Uh, the Prime Minister uh, was saying, you know, that doesn't mean the thing's going to open up tomorrow. It's just the talks are, are ongoing as to what it's going to look like. Uh, 75% want 75% of us vaccinated with one before with one shot before the border opens. Uh, does that seem like a good plan to you? There's a delayed effect. What you do at the border does not actually cause immediate problems. It causes them down the road. So the wave we're in right now, that was caused by travel in November and December. No question. That's when the UK variant came here. Now the border, our weak border controls, and they are weak, uh, are allowing in variants that are going to cause trouble in the fall. 
if we open the U.S. border too soon, and I, I would argue that June is too soon, then we're simply going to make the situation worse in the fall. And so we just need to ask ourselves, what are we prepared to do in the fall? Do we want more lockdowns? Do we want a fourth wave? If the answer is yes, then let's do what Europe is doing and open up wide. That's what they did last summer, and they, they paid a heavy price. So we, we just really need to decide. We can do whatever we want this summer, and I think we'll probably be fine. But come fall, we're going to have a price to pay. And I would argue that, that we should be conservative. Uh, it, uh, during the initial uh, wave of this pandemic, obviously things were uh, quite bad in the United States. Canadians were, no, we don't want them coming up here. Then obviously, obviously that turned around and Americans, well, we don't want Canadians coming down here. Uh, now we're talking about uh, a situation where Canadians are, are starting to aggressively vaccinate. Uh, however, there's some hesitancy in the United States. How do you think that plays along border cities? I mean, will it both both sides have to be 75 percent in order to get this open? Because, again, we, you know, if, if one keeps going in and out of a wave and the other doesn't, the other is, is sure soon to follow. It's a little bit like tobacco taxes in the 1990s, where they went high in Ontario and low in New York, and then vice versa, and that simply predicted the direction of the smuggling. So I agree, if you don't have even conditions on both sides, you're going to have challenges. But I think the overriding thing actually is, how do you prove you've been vaccinated? What system are we going to use for that? Because if we don't have trust in that, if it's not a robust system, then I think that then we fail on that basis. In other words, you have a lot of people who are not vaccinated saying, hey, guess what? I can pretend I am and I can do these things. And I think people who choose not to get vaccinated are far more likely to engage in reckless behaviors. Not not all, but many. And I think that's that's a concern. So to me, how border towns work and how the border works is going to be very contingent on that. And and not, not just a system, but a system that is reliable, that is trustworthy. Uh, all right, let's finish off with hospitals, doctor. Hospitals and ICUs, this was obviously the issue. It's not a case of who's getting sick and la-da-da-da-da. It's our hospitals are uh, are at their maximum capacity. Where are they now? And we're hearing good news in the sense that uh, they are starting to look at opening up other surgeries, which were canceled uh, due to uh, all hands on deck for, for the ICUs and COVID. Give us a little bit of an update on how we're doing there. Yeah, I think this is a really important question because the ultimate the ultimate measure of our success or failure in managing the pandemic is what's going on in hospitals. When we delay cancer surgeries, we fail. We fail badly. So the sooner we can start to resume at least the most serious of of uh, healthcare services, uh, the more we can move. The more quickly we can move from sort of a failing grade to to something like a passing grade. The ICU admissions and hospitalizations have leveled off. This is really good news, and it's what we would expect given that new case counts are crashing. The thing with COVID patients, though, is they're not out in a few days. They can be on a ventilator for weeks. They could be on a ventilator in some cases for months. And that means once they're in the ICU, they're taking up a bed for a long time. So it's going to take a while before anyone's willing to say our ICUs are in good shape again. But the fact that they haven't gotten any worse, the tidewaters have risen to their highest mark and are starting to settle back down, that is just fantastic news. I was really worried about the specter of refrigeration trucks parked outside hospitals. I was expecting that. And so we came very close, very close to having to do horrible triage. And, and, and that would have been just awful. So that, seems, that, that scare seems to be done. Uh, and I think that's, that's fantastic. But it's going to be probably two months before we can look at it and say, yeah, hospitals are now in good shape again. All right, here we are heading into a long weekend. We all know where we are with uh, protocol uh, and regulation and such. What advice do you have for us in this last push? To have patience. 
patience. We've been through so much. We have been through so much isolation, so much misery, so much suffering. The winter was not technically a hard winter in terms of weather, but emotionally it was. This weekend is the weekend where we go to the cottage, where we get together, where we're on patios. And I think, I, you know, my, 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 I'd like to implore everyone to have a few more weeks' patience to say that it's not quite yet time to do that, but we can measure in weeks and not months really just weeks and not months until we're able to do a lot of those things that we love to do. And having restraint this weekend is going to save lives. Probably the life of someone you've never met before, the life of some server or some retail clerk or their grandparent. But it's, it, it cumulatively, it matters. What we do matters. And just to please, please try and maintain that physical distancing. It's the best tool we have. Dr. Colin Furness with us, epidemiologist, associate professor, Institute of Health Policy Management and Evaluation at the University of Toronto's Dal Atlanta School of Public Health. Doctor, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks for all the help you do. Thank you. Now it's time for my opinion. Here's the commentary. At a time when many seem to be confused as to why things are open or closed, here is a good gauge or blast of reality as to where we really are at this time. News broke this week that talks were on between Canada and the U.S. to discuss the reopening of the longest border separating the two neighbors. However, the Prime Minister pointed out that although the discussion is being had about what the process may look like, it will not be happening anytime soon. At that point, he echoed what many health officials have been saying for a while. Before we get back to normal, cases need to be under control, and over 75% of people need to be vaccinated. Dr. Tam added 25% should also have their second shot. Until then, we will see local regulations slowly start to ease, including outdoor activities, but only as the ICU numbers, hospital capacity, and new cases go down, while vaccinations go up. It's really quite simple. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, I am blessed to be uh, going through this pandemic still employed uh, and blessed that I can uh, be doing this from uh, my home. Um, and, and I understand uh, that that is a special privilege uh, for those of us who can do that. There are a lot of people who cannot do that. Essential workers, frontline people, people who are on uh, the front lines that you and I see when we go in to buy our groceries and our essentials and all of that sort of thing. Uh, and an awful lot of us working from home as a result of this global pandemic. What does it mean moving forward? Over three in four Canadians like the idea of a hybrid model, a bit of both, as we uh, reboot the workplace. What is that going to look like? Let's bring in Duran Melnick, partner and national leader of people and change practice at KPMG and is with us now. Duran, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks, Scott. You too. So let's start here, uh, Duran. What sort of discussions are being held right now, and, you know, we used to say behind closed doors, but we'll say behind a closed Zoom call, uh, regarding what back to work will look like. What are managers, what are CEOs, what sort of discussions have been going on lately there? So what we're hearing when we look at the market and, and you know, we're, we've been chatting with client, our clients about this, and we also did some research to see what folks are talking about. What we've learned is that 
as the vaccines get rolled out and people get their, you know, get jabbed, um, it's the managers are starting to think about, okay, what does it look like when we reopen our office doors and we can start to have people back in? And, and so what folks are, are, are saying from the surveys that we've done, a lot of folks do want that, like you said, three out of four would love to have a mixed, uh, a mixed model where they can work some days from home and they can work some days in the office. And, and managers are thinking about, hmm, okay, how do we make that work? So that that's the big question. How do we make it work if that's the way we're gonna if that's the way we're gonna do it? What does that look like? How do you make that work? Because that can change so many different aspects. Whether it's the template uh, that you use prior to this and and uh, brainstorming sessions, whether it's even uh, how much office space, how much workspace you actually need. Uh, how does it affect everything? How is this going to change the template coming out the other end of this? Yeah, it's a good question, Scott, because it does it makes life a little bit more complicated for managers and team leaders because it used to be that you just expected people to show up and people came and they were all there with you and you could manage the team. But now some of your people might be in the office and some of them are going to be working from home. So now how do you make sure that your team works well when that happens? And so there's a few things that that, that managers can do and companies can do to make things easier. Uh, one is to be really clear and, and describe what the expectations are. So, you know, companies should be clear on what kinds of jobs are okay to do work from home, to be clear around how much is okay uh, versus how much is too much working from home. You might limit it to, say, one day a week from home, two, three days even. Um, you will want to help managers understand um, how to run a meeting effectively. If you've got people there in person with you and some people working from home, it's natural to kind of forget that there's people on the phone if they're not mm. there right in front of you. So out of sight, out of mind, is a bit, is it, that, that's a risk. And so helping the team to understand that um, and that, that, that'll help them be aware of the folks that are joining by phone or joining by Zoom uh, and, and to include them. So, so a bit of skills, a bit of policy, you know, that'll all be helpful. Um, and then the last thing is technology. So, you know, we've learned to use technology and there's probably more to learn to help make this easier. So examples uh, might include, uh, no, actually, no, go, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go, give us some examples. Go ahead. Yeah. So some examples on technology, um, you know, how do you make it easier for a team to share a document and work on a document together? So there's document sharing technology for that. Uh, if you've got documents that need a paper signature, an ink signature, uh, there's technology now for e-signatures, which has been proven over the pandemic, and a lot of companies have picked that up. Um, and then taking advantage of things like Zoom and Teams to do breakout sessions and other other things we used to do in person. Uh, the technology is rapidly catching up and, and able to reproduce those kinds of uh, meeting me, meeting approaches. Does this create sort of a two-tier employee system? You know, will we have some that are envious that others can do this, others uh, can't, that sort of thing? Yeah, that's a real concern, Scott, and that's where where companies need to be very thoughtful in in their approach, and and make it make it fair and make it equitable for workers, regardless of where you work, that you shouldn't be disadvantaged. And um, just to give an example, uh, you know, and this came out in our survey, some employees are worried that if they're not there all the time, that they might get passed over for a promotion yeah. or or you know a reward of some type because out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. And that's a real concern, you know. So, so again, it's about training for managers, and it's also um, 
putting some controls in place to to make sure, you know, maybe asking managers or asking teams, hey, how are you feeling about your team? Um, is everybody able to participate to the to their full ability? Um, do you have a sense for whether they're feeling included or whether they're frustrated about that? So I think the best thing will honestly be to just try it and ask your people how it's going and make corrections as we go. Are we making too much of this, uh, Joran? And by the and by that I mean uh, once things start to open up, once things start to get people start to get vaccinated and such, uh, people will just be willing to go back to normal or as close to it as as we can remember it. Or has just too much water gone onto the bridge for for it to go back to that normal? And whether you want it or not, there is going to be some sort of hybrid version coming out the other end. Yeah, it's it's a good question. There are certainly some people who are, are are skeptical about it and thinking, okay, you know, we'll all go back to the way we worked because that's the best way to be to to have a, a workplace culture and get stuff done. And they're not wrong. They're not wrong. That's it's great. But what we've learned through the pandemic is that people can work effectively from home, and if that saves commuting time, I'm just thinking about just in the GTA, how many yeah. people are spending 45 minutes to an hour in their car each way. People aren't going to want to give that back so quickly. And in fact, if if I'm an employer and my competitor is offering flexible work arrangement and I'm not, am I going to have trouble attracting the talent I need to run my business? You know, so, so you know, giving people back that one to two hours a day in time, even just a couple of days a week can be a big difference for, for people. We and were talking about, thing, yeah, sorry, go no, ahead. go ahead with the last thing. Go ahead. Sort of the last thing that, that is a bit of a reality for some businesses is, look, real estate is expensive. And if you can figure out a way mm. to reduce your office space by 20% or so, this might be part of the answer. You just hit a couple of things that I wanted to touch on there, Joran. Um, I, we were talking earlier on in the week uh, of another article that was out in regard to a, a mass exodus that's looming. Um, are employers concerned that once this is over, people are going, I don't want this anymore. I need to make some changes in my life. Uh, COVID-19 has taught me what's important and what isn't, and, and uh, I'm not happy where I am. Yeah, look, there's a lot of uh, a lot of anecdotal, a lot of stories uh, around people who have resigned and and or some pe- people who have moved, people who have changed employers, and, and I think that's a fact that is happening. And I think Microsoft recently did a study that showed up to 50% have considered leaving their current job and trying something else. Maybe that's a bit of cabin fever. <laughs> it's hard to say mm-hmm. from the survey, um, but it's real. And and, and so. I think I expect personally that there will be a bit of a rush back to the office. People do want to reconnect and see their team, see their coworkers. Uh, and then I think things will sort of stabilize, uh, you know, as, as we've described, that people will continue to work from home one, two, maybe three days a week, maybe even more. You also mentioned cost to the employer as a result of all of this. Obviously, if more and more people are staying at home, there's a hybrid version of the workplace. Less space is needed. And you think of how many workplaces there are in Ontario. And, you know, even if you're shrinking office office space by a couple of hundred feet, how, you know, what kind of impact that's going to have on so many different uh, situations. Uh, are, will employers look at this as a chance to rejig, a chance to cost save, restructure? Um, and, and specifically, if you get stuck, or not if you get stuck, or if you, if you choose to work from home, do you get paid less? Hmm. Yep. That's, it's a good question. Um, with regards to the real estate, yeah, I think it is an opportunity for companies to fresh look at, to take a fresh look at what they need. 
When I talk to clients, though, generally the cost savings piece, it's not a huge driver. Uh, what they are thinking is actually to keep the space that they have, but reconfigure it to make it easier for teams to work together. So instead of, let's say, separate desks and offices with closed walls, you might see more meeting rooms or you might see areas, you know, with couches or, or whatever, things that, 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 that create a space where teams can talk to each other more or go to a whiteboard and brainstorm. So, uh, you know, I certainly hear clients talking about that. And when I look at some of the bigger companies in downtown Toronto, that seems to be a trend in how they are designing their office space and have been renovating through the pandemic, actually. So um, it is a, you know, a chance for them to take a fresh look at the space they need. With regards to your question about whether they might pay people less, it's too early to tell. And, you know, I think that if you take it from the perspective of the worker, you know, pay me based on the value I bring to the work, not necessarily where I'm based and where I live. Hmm. Um, so that's certainly a valid perspective. But also employers are saying, hey, you know, I want to pay somebody based on cost of living and their, their expenses. I don't want people, you know, in, in rural areas to have a windfall and I don't want to underpay people who are living in places that are high cost of living. So. We don't know. We don't know what the answer is. It's too early to tell, but it's going to be a real balancing act. How difficult is it to measure a performance when people are working uh, remotely? We, you know, I mean, all, there's anecdotally all sorts of uh, of uh, examples of people who are working less or people who are, <laughs> I think, in most cases, working more uh, just simply because it's in front of them and they have it uh, to do. I, my wife and I are always arguing about that. And the kids are like, all right, shut it off. Let's go. Um, how do you measure performance when you're working from home? The principle that we like to talk about is is uh, looking at outputs or looking at what somebody actually produced or what were the results of their work. Generally, that's that's a that's a way of managing folks. Um, you know, don't judge them by how they do the work, but on on the results. Now, that works in some industries. It's not great for other industries. So I think it's always going to be really specific to the situation of of the business and the team, and it's going to be up to a manager's judgment. Um, but I would say in order to have successful remote working, you need to have some way of looking at what somebody uh, produced. And, and, and um, you know, I think that managers need to think about that and figure out, OK, how can I measure what someone produced rather than just were they physically here? Did I see them? And, and very much during... Yeah. Very much during the old days. I mean, it was all about seeing your face and being in, in getting that face time. You know, some bosses, well, I never see you. You're never here, especially in something like a sales where you would have uh, more flexibility in that regard. Um, you know, but you still had to be in there and, and, and show that face. Whereas there was others, uh, bosses perhaps that would say, Hey, I don't care if I even see you as long as I see the numbers that are there. Uh, how, how difficult is it going to be for management to, uh, to get used to this type of of uh, of setup, this sort of of, uh, of template. Yeah, well, I think it'll depend on the relationship between the manager and their teams. If there's trust there, and the manager trusts that the team is motivated and knows what to do and get it done, and the results are there, you know, customers are satisfied, orders are getting filled, right? Issues are getting resolved. You know, if the manager can see that and the team is, is feeling good and the the, the, the the results are there, awesome. If the, if, the, if the manager is lacking trust in their team, maybe because it's a new team, maybe it's because there have been issues in the past, we don't know. But, you know, that's, that's a situation where it's harder to manage people remotely. And in those situations, uh, personally, I would recommend that you be there together physically. And that'll help create that trust 
And if you've got trust, then that's that's the, the essential ingredient for the work from home to be effective. Obviously, this is a major concern. In your survey, 81% say their managers need to be better trained to effectively manage a hybrid workplace team. So obviously, that's a strong concern. Yeah, and it's hard to tell from the survey what's behind that. But yeah, clearly, they'd like their managers to be really good at managing so that they can have the flexibility to uh, to work from home or come into the office. Uh, but they're right. There are new skills that managers might need to learn. Uh, earlier, I gave the example running a meeting where some people are physically there and some are not, Yeah, you know, like that's not obvious how to do that, you know, and that means you've got to be more clear in what's the meeting about, make sure that everybody gets, gets a chance to speak. If folks are quiet, you tell them I'm going to call on you and then you call on them uh, and just to encourage the participation so that people are not disadvantaged. How are employers going to handle different personalities and different people wanting to do different things? Other people may be very fearful of coming back, may be very fearful of taking public transit uh, or any of that. Uh, some may be fearful that others don't have vaccination. How are you going to police all that? It's uh, <laughs> Policing, I'm not sure I would use that word to describe it, but it's look, it's a fact that employers need to provide uh, a health, a healthy and safe working environment, and you know, as long as they've reasonably done that and, and can demonstrate that they're taking the right precautions, then they are within their rights to expect employees to come into work. If an employee is fearful, um, then that's a conversation they need to have with their employer. And and so ideally, everybody understands, you know, they're, they're, the, the employees understand that the employer has taken the precautions and the employer has done a good job of explaining those. Uh, if people refuse to come into work, you know, even though the employer has done what they what, the, what they reasonably could, that that's a more difficult situation at that point. You know, I do encourage employers to uh, to get legal advice on what to do. Um, because, you know, that, that's ultimately the, the the law does not require everybody to get vaccinated and the law does not require employer employees uh, sorry it, it, the law does not require employers to require vaccination mm-hmm. so we're really in a bit of a gray zone where employee employers have to find that balance between um helping employees to feel safe uh, and also complying with the law and not not forcing people to get vaccinations if, if they're you know they can't for whatever reason this pandemic has changed everything, hasn't it? Uh, and, you, and you think about every aspect of life, everyone in it, but specifically with business. I mean, you know, again, to, pointing to your study, over three, uh, three and four, 77% of Canadians like the idea of a hybrid workplace model. That suggests we're not going back to the old ways. Mm-hmm. Is that surprise you that the numbers are so high? 77%. Well, I think if you offer people flexibility, most people would say, yes, I would love flexibility. And they've demonstrated, they've proven to themselves and to their employer that it, in most cases it can work. I'm not saying it's working for everybody, but in a lot of cases it does work and, and it offers benefits, saving commute time, maybe spending more time with your family or, you know, with the time that you've saved, maybe you want to work more and get ahead faster. Um, having that option is great. But, you know, by the same token, what's nice is they appreciate that managers need training, you know, the company might need to provide some kind of support to make sure that it works effectively. And that's ideally what we're all working towards is to see if we can give people the flexibility and make it work both for them and for the and for the company. How will we look back at this? 
uh, over this over this uh, not only decade but over this uh, millennium uh, is this is going to be the biz, the biggest seismic shift we've seen certainly uh, in a lifetime whether it's like an industrial revolution and a technological revolution I mean a lot of what you're talking about the technology's been there for years but we haven't been forced into using it now we have and as you're suggesting uh, the, the the change is is we're not going back to to the way we are or the way we were sorry as we look back at this, how monumental is this time? You know, I, I, I look at my kids and I think about their experience. And I also think about mm. some of our employees who are younger, who have grown up with, with the Internet. They've grown up with cell phones. They've, they've you know, they, to them, this is normal in, in a way. It, it's yeah. almost, you know, so and, and these are the people who are going to be assuming leadership roles in our organizations in the future and if, so if if to them if this is normal then ultimately this is where we're going <laughs> uh so you know I, I hate to make um our more tenured employees feel bad but uh i you know i i had a client that used to say knowing the future is the future hmm. there so, you go uh you know there i think that that says it all it's a very exciting time moving forward, though. Don't you get that feeling, Doran? It, it, it's we're on the cusp of something here. It, it's it's. Uh, I think we're going to see big things coming out the other end. I agree. I, I agree, Scott. And and it, I think the biggest thing that we've proven to ourselves is that we can change. Yeah. You know, before the pandemic, nobody imagined that entire organizations could shift to working remotely. You know that 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 so many you know the customers would be okay to buy stuff online. Uh, you know, and and. That's really inspiring that we can change and that we can evolve and that organizations can adapt and people can adapt. Often we're afraid of change because we perceive it as a loss. And a lot of us were felt like we lost something and we were grieving. And yet look at us now and, you know, everything that we've gained. Uh, and it would be great to keep that into the future. That whole attitude towards change is, is, is wonderful that, that we can do it. Here we grow again. Uh, John Melnick with us, partner and national leader of people and change practice with KPMG, something we're going to see a lot of in the uh, next immediate future. John, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. It had been purely a civil probe. In a statement, the Attorney General's office says we are now actively investigating the Trump Organization in a criminal capacity, along with the Manhattan District Attorney. The office did not give an explanation for what prompted the change. The DA's investigation has been going on for two years. Trump's taxes have come up in both investigations, along with whether Trump or his businesses manipulated the value of assets to gain favorable loans and tax benefits. In the past, the Republican ex-president has said the investigations are part of a Democratic witch hunt. Julie Walker, New York. This witch hunt just seems to be going on forever, don't you find? All right, as you just heard, uh, it seems the probe into Donald Trump, into his organization uh, out of New York State, has now become a criminal investigation. To talk more about all of this, Jason Opel is with us, Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of History and Classical Studies, McGill University, and is with us now. Jason, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you, you too. So what is the significance of what happened in regard from the changing uh, of this from being a, a civil to a criminal case? What does that mean? Explain that to us. So normally the New York Attorney General's office, um, you know, historically was actually kind of like a sleepy job where you're basically representing the state of New York in any kind of legal capacity. Only in the last 10 to 20 years has it become 
kind of a more, um, let's say, a, a regulatory agency that often is overseeing and, and pursuing potential criminal activity or uh, civil penalties for large-scale financial firms, um, you know, based in, in Wall Street that might be defrauding or misrepresenting information to shareholders in the general public. The significance here is that by shifting from civil to potential criminal charges against the Trump organization or Mr. Trump himself, Mr. Trump now potentially could be facing the possibility of jail time rather than fines. Um, that's the that's the sort of main takeaway. And it's also worth noting that if he were to be criminally charged, he would be the first U.S. president to be criminally charged ever. Uh, many said when he was still in office that once uh, his term ended that the legal troubles uh, would start. Uh, how long has this been going on? How did this all start for him? Yeah, so there's really there's a really question. There's basically two streams of trouble, <laughs> you know, call it like that. The first stream of trouble is based in the Trump organization's dealings largely in the state of New York. So this is both the Manhattan District Attorney's Office um, headed by a guy named Mr. Vance, and now the New York Attorney General's office. And the issues here stem from alleged tax and wire fraud, basically inflating the value of properties for credit and deflating the values of, of properties that they claim, that they own for uh, tax purposes. And if there's like a you know patient number one to these charges, it's um, Mr. Trump's former fixer Michael Cohen, who in sworn testimony said. That is what they did. That is to say, he, he actually said under oath, the Trump organization and with Mr. Trump's knowledge, uh, manipulated values of their properties, which is both tax and potentially wire and also maybe banking fraud. So that's like one stream of, of trouble for Mr. Trump. And that's interesting today. The other one is quite distinct. And it, it comes from January 2nd call that Mr. Trump, still in office, made to the attorney general of the state of Georgia in which he appeared to solicit right. the attorney general to change the outcome of that election. There is now a criminal probe there for uh, criminal, criminal solicitation of voter fraud in the state of Georgia. So that part of this is all new, but the first part really isn't. It seems Donald Trump's been in court all of his life fi uh, fighting all of these things in regard to a uh, Trump organization. So let's deal with that part of this first. Is there anything new here? Uh, anything that could stick considering he always seems to be rotating the lawyers and the lawsuits and it's a never ending sort of stream? Yeah, no, it's a really good point. So by one estimate of one journalist, Mr. Trump, over the course of his career, has been the subject of no fewer than 4,000 lawsuits. Um, mm -hmm. So not just, you know, him as one, as one named party. But nonetheless, he's no stranger to courts. But what is new here is that the information that the Attorney General uh, of, of New York seems to have possession of or is, is indicating that possession of would pass the mark from civil penalties and fines um, to criminal penalties. And that mm. is new. And what have they gotten that is new? Well, over the last two years, after a protracted legal battle, um, Mr. Trump's Byzantine tax records have been made public and available to these offices. And it's in going through those literally millions of documents with equally huge numbers of attachments to them that they seem to have found something. And if I can venture a guess here, it would be very unusual for the attorney general's office not to file charges after an announcement of this kind. It, it's actually kind of curious to me why they would make the announcement. Normally, we just go right ahead to make the, the charges. Um, speculating, I would wonder if they're basically trying to get other people to come forward or sing. 
um, saying, listen, if you wait this out, you're going to be potentially uh, under criminal indictment as well. One of these streams, obviously, in regard to the election in Georgia and stuff, uh, in reg- uh, reg- you know, uh, concerns him personally and his his presidential uh, race. The other one is his family holdings. So this affects the family as well. Yes, in fact, in the in the New York, I guess we're calling it stream of things here. So again, this is the largely the, the financial uh, allegations of criminal financial activity. One of the central figures is actually Eric Trump. Um, who was subpoenaed by the Attorney General of New York last year. He refused to cooperate. Uh, the Attorney General went to court and got a, um, a motion to, to compel. So he's actually a central figure in this, uh, one, of, one of Mr. Trump's sons. Um, it's, you know, the entire business of which Mr. Trump is just the head. Um, in Georgia, though, it's, it's literally just him. Um, and the evidence is entirely a recorded conversation with uh, the Republican uh, Secretary of State of Georgia and the, that person's attorney. Uh, which one of these two situations is worse? Uh, what his family and his organization is going through or the allegations uh, with the Georgia governor, attorney general, rather? Yeah, that's okay. So I would say from a perspective of kind of like the health of small D democracy, I like to think that it's a rather important thing about, you know, the nature of of the vote and solicitation of voter fraud, if if it is proven, would be quite uh, an important thing. However, it's extremely difficult to prove solicitation of of voter fraud. Um, I find, you know, on a legal basis, if I were Mr. Trump's attorneys, plural, I'd be more worried about the New York situation because um, it involves such a massive number of potential, uh, you know, potential criminal, uh, criminal dealings. It, it involves such a huge uh, uh, um, web of interactions of the Trump, of the Trump uh, excuse me, Trump organization over several years or even decades. There is, I think it's fair to say, a lot of smoke there. And that would, the penalties are quite severe. Um, especially for talking about multiple charges, this would be this would be the thing that I think is most keeping Mr. Trump up at night. And what sort of maneuvering is going on now behind the scenes with his family on this? I mean, uh, they have to be lawyered up as well. They certainly are lawyered up. Um, it's interesting to see. I mean, I, the thing that is, you know, kind of like concerning me, just like as an American looking at the sort of like how things are going in general for the United States is that while you have the Trump family increasingly lawyered up and basically like uh, increasingly in, in serious criminal legal jeopardy, you also have the, Mr. Trump himself increasingly um, in charge of the Republican Party. So if you see where this yeah. is going, well, that could mean that in the not too long from now, you have one of the leaders of a major political party in the United States the subject of criminal investigation and denying all of it and, and, and kind of implicating all of that into a larger, what he sees as a witch hunt against him. And, you know, if I may just kind of editorialize here, in addition to representative institutions and the rule of law, any democracy absolutely must have some common framework for ascertaining facts. It's absolutely essential. And we in America are increasingly losing that and we were seeing the politicization of truth, the politicization of, of fact. And that is really, really worrisome for me, you know, beyond what the situation is for uh, Mr. Trump or for those who are pursuing him. Is that why he is still so involved in politics, Jason? Is this about him advancing his leadership goals or his political influence? Or is this about keeping his rear end out of jail? 
I think the, the two goals, the political and personal, have merged sometime in 2017, 18, when he realized how much being president, how uh, powerful it is, and how it's so essential to his own interests. I think they've long since merged in his mind. So I think he will pursue this to the end. He will, he'll, he'll deny and, and, and argue for that this is a political rather than legal pursuit to the end. Um, and as I say, the thing that has surprised me um, is the extent to which he has remained kept an iron grip on the Republican Party. I actually thought his influence would slip after a few months, but it has not. And there are a few other possible leaders of the Republican Party who are positioning themselves for 2024. But I, for now, I wouldn't bet on any of them. I, I would bet on Mr. Trump being the standard bearer for that party. And that, given the collision course you see between Trump himself and the legal system, is just very worrying. So as these legal battles uh, heat up and his name is you know, obviously back in uh, the mainstream, does this grow his base or does this does this shrink his base? And in his influence not. in the Republican Party, at what point do the Republicans go? You know what? This is just getting out of hand. Uh, you know, he, he's being he's he's under criminal investigation here. Or, or does that just build the base? I don't think it builds the base or shrink the shrink the base. It, it maintains the base. Um, and as I say, that that's a surprising thing. I thought when, once um, he was out of the limelight and out of you know the Twitter sphere, he would basically fade away. But that is not the case, and he has remained. Um, he, he, there's really very few, you know, the Republican dissidents are not doing too well. And if they were to, they'd threaten to form their own party. Good luck. If they were to do that, that party would be crushed in every election. It, it just, they don't have the numbers. They don't have the popular support. So he has remained enormously powerful. Um, and I think that he, you know, it, he's not going to grow or expand his appeal, but he's not losing it either. And that's both with his so-called base, but also with the vast majority of Republican office holders who have made clear that they're not going to cross him because they know that if they do, that's the end of their political career. What happens if some of these legal situations really start to stick and he becomes pinned? At what point do they cut bait here? Uh, because obviously he's using all of this to keep the whole witch hunt, the whole fixed election, to keep that whole message alive. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's really the, the million-dollar question. At what point do... Well, I won't say at what point will the I'll just put in quotes the rule of law prevail over or kind of will will that sort of win out against immediate infighting in the Republican Party? Uh, I don't know. I, I I could really see the Republican Party remaining solidified and standing with with Mr. Trump no matter what to the end and to what end? Well, I mean, if there's a point where he gets to the criminal charges have been filed. He'll, you know, gum it up as much as possible in every possible way with his, with his considerable resources and run for office. And I, I really think that's probably the most likely scenario at this point. Um, and that, is, as I say, it's just a somewhat concerning scenario because it's just so unprecedented to have uh, a major political party, you know, it seems to be increasingly at odds with um, normal legal processes and the you know, general ascertaining of, of fact. Can the Republican Party get reelected with it or being in such disarray, being so divided at, on this? But see, that's the thing. I, I, I don't think they can get, win many elections, uh, at least not right now, very divided or without Mr. Trump. 
but I don't think they are very divided. They're, they're unified with Mr. Trump. And mm-hmm. so can that win elections? Absolutely. Uh, it depends on the context, depends on the kind of news cycle. Um, they can't win any right now, uh, if there were to be any, because Mr. Biden is very, very popular uh, and the Democrats are unusually united. But give it a couple months, give it a few more crises, and you'll see the usual figures in the Democratic Party um, begin to show. You already are seeing that to some extent. And the Trump party, I'll call it, can absolutely win other elections. So I, I don't think they're divided. I think that they're, the Republicans are largely unified uh, behind Mr. Trump, uh, come what may. Uh, we all remember since the beginning of this uh, circus that uh, the, Donald Trump's personal tax records were always a big issue, he being the only president that didn't uh, reveal them. Uh, how, how big of, a, of, a, of an issue will these tax records play? Will that change anything as far as the perception of Donald Trump? So very few things at this point can change people's minds about Mr. Trump. They either loathe him or love him. And it's astonishing how few there are in between in the United States, at least. However, one of the few things that can move things a little um, would be things like, I'm just speculating here, really shady dealings with non-U.S. entities. Um, There's always been this real question about how, what is the deal with the apparent leverage that the Russian government has with Mr. Trump. If there's something really revealed about that, about some real way where, where Mr. Trump's business uh, entanglements, or I'll just call them his creditors, have some real claim on him, that will whittle away uh, some people. But at this point, the United States is so powerfully divided, uh, so dramatically divided, that it's hard to see much of the needle moving. What will, uh, obviously, and I think what surprises me up here about Donald Trump is, is you know, you cannot keep dividing and winning elections. And, and right from the very beginning, he has done that to the point now where he is actually dividing his own party or and now bringing it together and changing and, and, and changing direction uh, of it. Is there anybody, and again, obviously very divisive, and you're either in one camp or the other camp, but does anybody look back at what the last four years were and just the chaos and the mayhem and the tweets every hour or so? Like, is anybody really missing that? Like, Does anybody really want to go back there? I mean, right now, no. I mean, Mr. Biden is the, you can call Mr. Biden, Mr. Biden is the least disagreeable American. In other words, he has the, yeah. he has the, the, the least number of people who dislike him. Um, and he's, you know, there's been a great deal of successes, especially with, with COVID. The vaccination campaign has been really quite astonishing, at least until last month or so. So, you know, right now, no, no, no the, 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 the 60% or more of Americans have no desire whatsoever for a return to Mr. Trump. But the United States is a, it's a funny place. And you, you get a situation where in, in the, is a new cycles change, the political formation that is the Democratic Party, which I've said before, is, reminds me more of a parliament than a party. It's actually so diverse and divided normally. It'll again have its fissures. And the Republicans, who are normally more united, and, and I, I just still are, um, can capitalize on that. And it's not always, you know, who's most popular generally. It's who can bring out the vote, who can vote. You see a lot of that these days. Uh, who has this sort of new cycle at the moment. Um, who has the funding to get their message out. All those factors, the Republicans can still be very competitive, uh, even with um, a potentially uh, someone under criminal investigation at their head. 
I always thought, and maybe this is my naivete, uh, my naivete, my being naive. <laughs> I can't say the word today. Um, I always thought the pendulum would swing back and that people would, you know, uh, we need less show and we need more go. So are we going to see more candidates like Donald Trump or are we going to see the opposite? I think Naivety. that, yeah, yeah, I, I think that the, the showman sort of form of things will continue. Um, I think Mr. Trump sort of, uh, the way I like to think of it is it's not so much that he divides in Congress, he just does hostile takeovers of companies, of the Republican Party, and then to some extent of the United States when he won the uh, electoral vote, even though he lost the, the, the popular vote. Um, we'll see more of, of that style. We'll see more of that uh, um, ideology of, of Trumpism. Uh, but I think that for now, with the possible exception of the governor of Florida, who is trying to position himself as like Trump, but slightly less given to tweet storms and slightly more kind of able to carry things out, with, with that one exception, I don't see a Republican leader emerging to, to challenge Trump over the next three and a half years. So has the has the pandemic changed this at all? Has the cha- has the pandemic changed people's attitudes at all? The pandemic has, well, or actually the, the, the response um, since January, the, the vaccination campaign has, you know, really solidified um, a powerful, for the moment, Democratic majority. Um, put it that way. You know, the, the, the kind of embarrassment and horror at the more than half million Americans dead and the, and the complete incompetence of the almost willful incompetence, frankly, of the response to 2020 really uh, moved that needle. But, you know, the United States, we're not known for long attention spans and the news cycle will shift. And by 2022, it's nothing of 2024, there will be new subjects preoccupying American voters, dominating headlines and uh, uh, activating people to vote. Fascinating discussion. Jason Opel has been with us, associate professor and chair of the Department of History and Classical Studies, McGill University, New York State, uh, will probe the Trump organization. It has now become a criminal investigation. Jason, fascinating stuff. Thanks for the time. Be well. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.